This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Saturday, November 23rd, 2019. I'm Caleb Brown. The Janus ruling at the U.S. Supreme Court established that government workers who are not members of unions no longer have to pay union dues or fees. So where do things stand now for workers who would like to declare their independence? Joe Lehman is president of the Mackinac Center. We spoke last month in Colorado Springs. Sure, the ruling was uh, almost a year and a half ago, and what it did was it gave about 5 million government workers uh, the ability to be treated as if they were unionized in a right-to-work state where they can't be compelled to support a union, Uh, just like you said. Where it stands now is you've got these 5 million or more workers who who now uh, have rights that are recognized by the court. But most of them don't know they have these rights, and most of them don't know how to exercise them. And that's where the Mackinac Center and other groups come in. You said 5 million people. These are people who are most likely not interested in being a union, or these are people who are paying fees who are not members of the unions and may or may not care about offering that support. These are unionized government employees, and frankly, we don't know how many of them are interested in being in a union, but most of them were told when they got their job working for a state or local municipal or school uh, government, whatever, that they had to support the union or they couldn't have the job. This uh, Janice didn't really have much effect on federal employees. Okay, so uh, what are some of the remaining, uh, I guess vestigial uh, parts of this uh, union power uh, that just simply shouldn't exist? Well, for the the main thing is that the unions collect an enormous amount of money uh, through the dues and fees that they levy on workers. They call them members. Um, most of the employees have really just been dragooned in into the union, and uh, I think it makes the makes uh, the union leadership feel better to call them members as if they joined the Rotary Club or something. But that's not what happened. We all know that. It's like when I hear the AARP talking about its membership numbers. I'm like, <laughs> you know, I get. I'm not the. I'm not an old fella, but uh, I do get a lot of mail from AARP. I wonder if I'm included in. Yeah, that. that's right. You, you may, they may count you among their proud members. And the, uh, the, for the case of, say, a teacher, and public school teachers are typically unionized, those teachers might pay dues around $1,000 a year. It's higher than that in California. And the law allows unions um, to uh, spend money to bargain collectively and to settle grievances and to organize and, you know, keep their organization together. But uh, they historically have collected amounts of money far in excess of what's required to carry out those basic functions serving workers. Well, they've used the extra money on other things. And that uh, a lot of that has gone into politics. So the best numbers I'm aware of show that unions spend about $1.7 billion every two-year election cycle on politics and lobbying in this country. That's a massive number. 
That's and, a big and a lot of that is get out of the get out the vote, uh, those kinds of things. They, uh, it's it's uh, you name it. Um, now it it isn't all you know directed to campaign contributions because as uh, union lawyers will point out, well, it's illegal to take union dues and give it directly to campaigns, and and uh, I suppose they're not making that up. But nevertheless, there are 1.7 billion union dollars uh, that going into elections and lobbying every every two year two year cycle. So. And, in terms of the uh, the rights that have been afforded under uh, the Janus case, um, you said a thousand dollars a year for some people for teachers who make fifty grand. That's not nothing. That's that's a pretty significant amount of money. It's real money, and the the reason the Mackinac Center uh, really sunk its teeth into this issue, we're primarily a Michigan think tank. Uh, and we've developed an expertise in labor policy over the years because you can't really be a Michigan think tank if you don't think about labor and labor law. So we were very involved in Michigan becoming a right-to-work state, um, uh, and that law passed in 2012. And we thought that people would immediately rush for the exits and resign from their unions because we sort of envisioned them as having been held captive all of these long years. And what happened over the next year is approximately nothing. Maybe 1% of the people resigned from their unions, even though they were now free to do so without fear of losing their job. And it turns out there are a lot of reasons for that. The unions actively blocked uh, the exits uh, through all sorts of uh, uh, means that uh, most of which I would describe as uh, highly uh, unethical. But also workers just did not know how to resign from the union because the union still controlled the resignation process. So we learned that if we educated workers aggressively on their rights, leaving the decision to resign up to them, of course, and then if we litigated on behalf of workers whom the union was egregiously blocking, uh, we could uh, help open the doors to others who who wanted out. And, and now we see uh, that uh, Public sector union membership in Michigan is uh, down uh, around, well, let's talk about for the largest union, the uh, Education Association, Michigan Education Association, down about 30 percent after an active education litigation campaign. Unions, we've we've talked about this before, but it's worth uh, refreshing people's memories because it is fairly egregious. Unions have uh, rules that govern how you may exit the union. There are these sort of brief windows in which you may file your paperwork. The paperwork is often unclear to the point that uh, you may think you're exiting the union and they say, no, you checked the other box. You checked the stay in the union box. So um, refresh our listeners' memories of of exactly what kinds of uh, hurdles are sort of thrown up by unions when it comes to people just trying to leave. Yes, it's uh, sometimes it's almost uh, uh, comical, <laughs> but uh, comically sad, I guess, would be the term. But one thing we saw was as soon as the court said, yes, you have to let them out if, if they want out, uh, provide a means for them to resign, um, the union changed the address, changed the P.O. box of where the resignation paperwork went to. Well, that's a hassle. 
But, you know, if it gets returned, you can just, you know, get the return mail, send it. Uh Uh-uh, it didn't work like that because the union had set up its own internal rules that said, you may resign from our union, but only in the month of August. And this was the teachers' union. Now, teachers, they're not thinking about their union in August. They're going in, they're setting up their classroom, they're ending, you know, they're trying to wrap up summer vacation and all of that stuff, getting ready for the kids to come back. So they set up a resignation window and... Then they changed the P.O. box. So then when your paperwork didn't make it into the correct P.O. box on time, you had to wait a whole extra year to resign. So the Mackinac Center litigated against these resignation windows and uh, eliminated them. But other states still have them. Uh, that's right. And it varies union by union, actually. So it's it's a real patchwork of policies uh, and procedures that have to be mastered, which is why there one reason there are so many attorneys involved in labor law. So you, you do have... You do have state laws that apply, and uh, uh, your your listeners may be interested in knowing that for government sector unions, state law is what governs them, not federal law. Uh, For private sector unions, the federal law governs, but in the states, you've got 50 different systems, and then each union has its own bylaws, uh, and and it gets very complicated very quickly. Uh, Going forward... um what are what's the remaining low-hanging fruit for uh, getting these public sector workers out of the unions of which they want no part? We're really only uh, getting started with uh, the with the low-hanging fruit. And we found in Michigan, uh, and again, we we just took that as our as our test case, not because we think it's representative of the country, but that was our experience in Michigan. So after three years of concerted effort, about 20% of the workers uh, decided to exercise their right to leave the union, and they did. And we thought, let's see if we can scale that nationally. And so, of course, the low-hanging fruit will will come first. But uh, we got to some of the low-hanging fruit a little quicker this time because we were a little smarter after the Michigan experience. So, Now we're looking at numbers of resignations from the unions uh, across all of the most affected states that looks like it might amount to $190-200 million a year in uh, dues income to the union. That's that's about how many might have left. So where we're the most active, uh, we're very active in California, very active in New Jersey, those are strong union states. So they've got high union density, and union dues are pretty high there. Um, that's we've been very active there, plus uh, plus some other states, and uh, so we're very happy with our progress. So you might expect that uh, a public sector union um, would adjust its behavior in such a way that is well. We're going to lower the union dues. We're going to focus on liability insurance. We're going to focus on doing the kinds of things that people who work for an organization together can get done uh, and that the government itself is not, uh, strictly speaking, paying for. We're going to focus on services, that sort of thing. The things that you want unions to do, the things that members of a union want the union to do, but also are universally recognized as generally beneficial uh, services. That's right. Um, but, but what's been the experience if if they're changing P.O. boxes to, to make it harder for people to get out, it does not 
lend a lot of confidence that they're making the kinds of adjustments that uh, union members would say, you know what, maybe I will stay in these, this union. I think your point is is underappreciated, uh, particularly by conservatives. And conservatives often uh, have sort of a knee jerk reaction against unions, and and the and modern unions there there is plenty to dislike. Uh, I can certainly admit that, but you know we can't forget that a lot of these public sector unions began as professional associations, especially the teachers union. They did provide real things that teachers wanted. I presume they, they paid dues back back in the day, although they weren't $1,000 a year or the equivalent. And so there, since we deal mainly with the problems of workers who are struggling to get out, we don't hear as many of the stories like the ones you're saying, but we have heard some anecdotes where the unions are doing precisely what you said. They're saying, boy, if we don't treat our our members better, we're going to lose more of them. And so they're moderating their behavior. Some of them are moderating their political spending because every time you spend a dollar to support a Democrat, you make a Republican mad and, and, and vice versa. And so that some of that is going on. And I think in an ideal world, uh, unions could be an extremely valuable part uh, of the economy, providing labor brokerage services and training and certification and all kinds of things the market values. But it's when they go down the road of compulsion that they get into trouble. Joe Lehman is president of the Mackinac Center. We spoke last month in Colorado Springs. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you please and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 